screen, but I was forewarned to keep an eye on Bill Sullivan. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here tonight, and I bring you greetings from Bill Mowry, from Bob Crick, from the other members of the Richmond Roundtable, an organization that's also known as Merle Sumner's Virginia Speaker Bureau. <laughs> I'm happy to report that our Australian friend, Barry Crompton, uh, made it through the lines and was in Richmond in good health. He was scheduled to speak yesterday at the prison roundtable. His topic was Australia and the Civil War. <laughs> Barry calculated it would take a minute and 30 seconds. <laughs> Before we get into our topic, which is Richmond First City of the Confederacy, I would like to make a few autobiographical confessions by way of establishing our bias in advance. You may have read in your excellent newsletter, I was born and raised in Mississippi, and as a youngster, came to believe that the Civil War was a kind of combination of the Fourth of July and the World Series. And why not? It was for me at that age, uh, men in bright uniforms, suspended banners in the wind, uh, bugles, drums, a spectacular uh, sort of activity. This might be called the Jeff Stewart School of the Civil War. God's greatest game. I grew older. I visited my grandmother in Corinth uh, every summer. Uh, she was one of those Southerners who I did not forget, nor forget. She took me across the line to Shiloh, went to the National Battlefield Park headquarters, where the cemetery is. I'd never seen tombstones so symmetrically aligned. I'd never seen grass so green. It overlooks the river. It was magnificent. He would say, this is where all the Yankees are buried. Then we would go to another part of the field where the dirt was red clay, where what passed for vegetation was scrub pine. He would say, now in this open area after the battle, they dug a big ditch. The Yankees got all our boys and they put them in this ditch. And for a while, I have to admit, I joined the ranks of those embittered few that might be called the unreconstructed. Forget <laughs> hell was a convenient slogan. Then I grew up in Lowland, read about the 21st Illinois, and read about the Irish Brigade, Marine Pipes. Time and time again, they went against the stone wall. Started the day with about 1,200 men, and that's 300 at the end. I learned that uh, neither side had a monopoly on heroes or scandals. I learned that this war, in fact, uh, took some 600,000 lives. I learned that men on both sides were fighting for something they believed in. That it's not a northern story or a southern story, but an American story. And I left my jubilee early school of retribution and joined a man from Illinois who said uh, that the subject itself was, quote, too bad for mouse. Now, with those thoughts in mind, uh, we echo Horace Greeley and we move on to Richmond. This is the way the city would have looked in 1860. City built on a series of hills on Jade River. Not that river came Captain John Smith only a few days after the selection of a site at Jamestown. Now, the significance of that is that it enables the Chamber of Commerce to boast that Richmond's a great place to visit since 1607. <laughs> well, Captain John didn't find much, and 
fact, not much happened there. Uh, the capital was moved from Williamsburg to that site in 1779. The Richmond's great moment, of course, was during the Civil War. Every school kid, even in modern times, knows Richmond was the capital of Confederacy. But my argument tonight is that Richmond was much more than that, and that virtually every way that's meaningful and measurable, Richmond is the first city of the South. That's certainly true in a demographic sense, as we look at Main Street and the people on it. Richmond had a population of 38,000 before the war. It went to 100,000 overnight almost, and eventually to 150,000. New Orleans Falls in April 1862. Richmond is the population center of the Confederacy. Two-thirds of the people in Richmond would have been white, but a third uh, would have been black. Most would have been slaves. And Richmond had been the center before the war of a, of a viable slave trade. Uh, many of the slaves in Richmond were domestic, but a fair number worked in the factories. And this is a rather peculiar phenomenon. You've got urban slavery and industrial slavery in Richmond. Now, I said that most of the blacks would have been slaves, most but not all. Uh, there was an active free black community dating from well before the Revolutionary War. You've got your hair cut in Richmond. Civil War era, we've been by a free black barber in all probability. You're taking a ride in the equivalent of a modern day taxi called Hacks in that day and age. We've been owned and operated in all probability by a free black. Uh, there's a very active free black religious community, some great churches there in Richmond in the Civil War years. And the blacks at large make an important contribution to the Confederacy. Uh, virtually all the fortifications in and around Richmond constructed by black labor. Uh, some of it was conscripted, but some of it was volunteer. Uh, furthermore, the majority of all the nurses, and most would have been male, in the hospitals in Richmond during the war would have been black. The majority of the laborers, heavy factories in Richmond, to include a lot of skilled laborers, would have been black. Well, Richmond is the population center of the South. Of course, it's also the political center. As we look at Jefferson's temple-style capital, designed in the 1780s, opened in 1788, a historic structure. I know a number of you have been to Richmond in the past few years. Modern times, there are wings. Modern times, there are front steps. But this is based on the original design. This is the way the Capitol would have looked in the Civil War period. Or perhaps the most historic uh, room in the Capitol, the old House of Delegates Chamber. In that room, John Marshall, in the year 1807, presided over the treason trial of Aaron Burke. In that room, on April 23, 1861, Robert E. Lee accepted command of the Virginia State Forces. They later subsumed, of course, in the Confederate Army. In that room, the Confederate House of Representatives met and debated and discussed and passed the law that affected the Confederacy at large, the Virginia State Capitol. It's a political center not because the Capitol is there alone, but also because the civil servants of the Confederacy are concentrated in Britain. The most important building in that regard is directly in front of the Capitol, the old Customs House. A federal building in the 1850s, taken over by the Confederate government, becomes kind of an executive office complex. It's where Jefferson Davis had his headquarters and a number of cabinet officers. Ironically, at the end of the war, the federal authorities regained control of it, turned it into a court building, and it's where Jefferson Davis had his office that he would have been tried for treason had the litigation gone that far. It's still a federal building and a court building. The political center because of the bureaucracy and of course because the bureaucrats are in Richmond. And this is the White House of Confederacy. When many of you visited uh, that particular uh, site, you would have seen uh, many exhibits. 
Uh, more recently, a new educational wing has been added. All the artifacts have been removed. A major project is underway to restore the White House of Confederacy to the condition it would have been in when Jeff and Davis and his family made it their home uh, during the war years. This will be a spectacular attraction when it's completed. And meanwhile, all the artifacts you saw there are now in a brand new air conditioned, uh, marvelously spacious educational wing with some first rate exhibits already available for the public and many others of plans. Richmond is the political first city of the South, measured by the capital, measured by civil service. But even if that had not been the case, I believe it would have been worth all the casualties in and around Richmond. The Confederacy had to sacrifice to defend it because Richmond was, without question, the economic capital of the Confederacy. And this is true for a number of reasons. Richmond was a transportation center. There were five major railroads coming into Richmond. And you can't read about the great campaigns in the East without reading about these railroads and their importance, their fires. And they were not connected at the outset of the war. There were different gauges coming on one side and had to take a hack across town and the like. They were temporary connected base during the war. But Richmond is a railroad center. Transportation center because it's a deep water port. There's a dock area. The outskirts of Richmond would resemble in 1860 a New England fishing village. Uh, goods from Richmond went around the world to port city. Richmond is also the eastern terminus of the James and Kanawha Canal. This is the first canal scheme designed for the North American continent dating from the 1780s. The James and Kanawha, the great James and Kanawha, extended 197 and a half miles to the west. And this is the principal artery of commerce during the war years. And it's the target of innumerable federal cavalry raids. James and Kanawha Canal. Transportation center because there are all kinds of other roads coming in. The road on the, on the right, made of planks, the toll road. You have to pay for the privilege of bouncing along. And people don't say, well, why in the world would anybody want to do that? They will look to your left and consider the alternative. <laughs> the other roads coming in. Well, Richmond is a transportation center. Richmond is also the center of heavy industry in the south. And here's a picture of the famed Trinity Iron Works. The mother arsenal of the Confederacy. Virtually every cannon manufactured in the South came from Credico, from 12 or 1300, depending on the authorities you, you, you quote. The iron plate for the Merrimack, made right there. A work on the first torpedoes, work on the first submarine, the Credico Ironworks. It's invaluable. I would add for your general uh, interest that uh, Credico is being restored. It's owned by the Ethel Corporation. Uh, Ms. Gottwald, who's chairman of the board, is taking this as a kind of personal project. Uh, this main building is virtually complete. Uh, this chimney that extends about 86 feet in the air uh, has been completely restored. Apparently, Mr. Godwell's hope that, in fact, there will be a working foundry in the complex when it's open to the public. And you get a sense of uh, how iron would have been made in that day and age. The Predator is spectacular. Spectacular because uh, the head of it is an industrial genius called the Carnegie of the South, Joseph Reed Anderson. He was a West Point graduate, native of Virginia, trained as an engineer, resigned his commission before the Civil War, which worked for what became the Trinity Iron Works, and then became the head of it as a civilian before the Civil War started. He put it on, on the map. At the outbreak of the fighting, he resigned uh, as head of Trinity, accepted commission in the Confederate Army, uh, served with valor, 
in the presidential campaign, but was wounded. Meanwhile, things weren't going so well at Trinica, and he was asked directly and personally by both Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis to return uh, to Trinica Ironworks uh, to make it uh, the kind of heavy industry complex that the uh, South so desperately needed, and he did so. Spectacular story. But Trinica is only one of two dozen major ironworks in Richmond. Besides the ironworks, you've got a dozen flour mills, and this is Gallagher Mills. By some standards, the largest in the world in 1860. Richmond was a flour-producing center. I had occasion to do some work in some primary source materials and having to do with San Francisco in the 1850s, and the majority of all the flour that came to San Francisco came from Richmond, Virginia. <coughs> there were also 52 tobacco plants in Richmond on the eve of the war. Richmond was the tobacco capital of the world. Now, a large number of these buildings are quickly used for other purposes, like hospitals or warehouses or uh, even prisons, as you well know. Richmond was a tobacco capital. Economic center, because it's the mercantile center. There were a thousand merchants originally on the eve of the war, and that number soars. Not only merchants, but bankers. There are four major banks in Virginia. They are all located in Richmond. It's difficult to see how the Confederacy would have survived some very important financial strains without the capital at hand in those four banks headquartered in Richmond. Economic center, because it's a market center. This is an old first market, made from before the Revolutionary War. A produce brought in from surrounding counties kept the city alive. Without question. The pattern is already there, though, before the war began. It's an economic center, the economic first city of the South. The same general label could be applied to the social and cultural and intellectual life of Richmond. But here we have one of the Richmond papers prominently displayed, but they were actually full. Uh, they read in the North as well as the South, a kind of a barometer of Southern thinking during the war years. Uh, they had a circulation of about three times uh, the population of Richmond to suggest the broad distribution of these four major papers. See, dueling pistols on the left, a duel for fault during the war years, among the editors and some of their readers. On the eve of the war, the editor of one of these leading papers fought a duel with the editor of another and shot and killed him on the streets of Richmond. He would say, this is appalling. I can only respond, well, the free enterprise system. <laughs> At any rate, we have not only the newspapers, but we have a wide variety of other periodicals. The Richmond is a publication center. You have, for example, the most important journal of its kind in the Old South and during the Civil War, the Southern Literary Messenger. Many famous editors wanted Matthew Fontaine Maury before the Civil War. It's in a class by itself, kind of journal of opinion. The most famous editor, well before the Civil War, known to all of you, Edgar Allan Poe. <coughs> Southern Literary Messenger predates the Civil War, as would the Southern Planet, which was the foremost Journal for Farmers of the Old South. Southern Planet incidentally is still being published there in Richmond. If you were a farmer in most Americans were, and you wanted to keep up with the latest advances in your field, then undoubtedly you subscribe to something like the Southern Planet, and it was the foremost of, of that line. A Norris of Charge, you got a few classical references here. One a really exciting topic, uh, you could always read about Peruvian guano. <laughs> We've had a lovely meal, and so we won't discuss what that is, but uh, the point is, the Southern Plant was published in Richmond, as was the Farmer's Register, edited by Edmund Ruffin, as were half a dozen religious magazines, various denominations, as were during the war, half a dozen or more, what we might call Confederate periodicals. These came into being from 1861 
1865. Southern Illustrated News. The Magnolia Weekly. The Magnolia. Sounds like we're making these up, but these are actually titles. No mint julep, as far as I know. You have the Sentinel. You have the Bivouac. You have the Bayonet. They all reflect the cause. They all reflect the time. Uh, they have news from the front. They have some portrait. They have some fiction. Uh, they make attempts at humor, even in the uh, most bleakest moments of the war. Uh, they seem to enjoy sticking the needles of the doctors of that day and age. Attempt at humor, uh, an example from Southern Illustrated News would be the catechism of the master surgeons of the Confederate Army. Questions and answers. Question, what is the prerequisite for being a master surgeon in the Confederate Army? Answer, that you have lost your private practice. <laughs> <laughs> so I I'll tell you the worst poem I've ever read, which is from the Magnolia Weekly. Why is it taking McClellan so long to get to Richmond? Answer, he doesn't like the route. That's not mine, folks. <laughs> 29 educational institutions in Richmond during the war years. Two offering instruction on the collegiate level. One was the Medical College of Virginia, housed in this peculiar-looking building, Egyptian architectural style, dating from the 1840s. The Medical College of Virginia, the only medical school in the South that remained in continuous operation throughout the war. It trained a lot of those master surgeons of the Confederate Army, no doubt. It's very important. The second level, uh, Example of a collegiate uh, institution was Richmond College, or the State University of Richmond, uh, foremost graduate of the University of Richmond, I suppose, is Dr. Douglas Southall Freeman. The Baptist Institute is still in Richmond, now at a different location. There are 29 schools in Richmond. You've also got any number of great taverns, of great hotels, of great inns. This is the Spotswood, located very close to Capitol Square, where Jefferson Davis first took rooms when he came the Richmond, where Judith P. Benjamin uh, kept rooms throughout the war. Uh, the bar at the spot some people regard, properly speaking, as the headquarters of the Confederacy. You could always find the top generals and top civil servants and so forth in the bar at the spot On one occasion, there was even a horse in there. Seen this, and some of you, I'm sure, have read Mrs. Chestnut's favorite, uh, famous diary, her account of what's going on, and she remarks on this particular occasion, a South Carolina cavalryman rode a horse into the bar in Spotswood. Now she added to that statement, he was intoxicated, of course, but a splendid rider. <laughs> well, the Spotswood and the other hotels and inns are an extremely important part of the social scene, as would be the 33 churches of Richmond during the war years, which is sometimes called the city of churches, city of fires. Taking the prototype, St. Paul located just off Capitol Square, uh, very familiar, I'm sure, to many of you, where Jefferson Davis worshiped. In fact, he was there that morning of April the 2nd, the Sunday morning, when he got word from Lee that he could no longer hold the lines at Petersburg. Uh, Lee worshiped there at St. Paul's Episcopal Church, Jody Freed Anderson, many, many others. Uh, Miss Chestnut said one day she went in and saw 12 Confederate generals in the queue at St. Paul. Uh, she added in her caustic fashion, uh, perhaps the cause would be better served if they were at the front, and nonetheless, they were, they were in the queue. Sometimes called the Cathedral of the Confederates. Until uh, very recently, there were Confederate battle flags in the sanctuary of St. Paul's Church. And that changed when they got a young, uh, liberal minded uh, rector. Uh, the battle flags came down. At this moment, uh, that individual 
Is it New York, New Jersey, or New York? <laughs> Same policy. Churches, extremely important to the war effort. Uh, they make available a room for hospitals, room for women's aid societies. They tear up the, uh, the cushions and so forth, make bandages. 33 churches in Britain. We've also got some very famous cemeteries. I know a number of you have been to Hollywood, 135 acres, rolling hills, wooded, uh, overlooks the James River, one of the first landscape cemeteries in America. Tens of thousands of better dead would be buried in Hollywood and the other cemeteries during war years. Uh, in modern times, regarded as kind of a vile hallow of the Confederacy. You've got Jeff Stewart there, you've got George Pickett there, you've got Jeff Davis there, you've got Fitzhugh Lee there, Fitzhugh. Too hard to be a man, he said, not quite hard enough to be a horse. Again, you're a successor, of course, but too late. But part of the general social scene, the cemeteries, a number of secret organizations, this is the oldest continuously active botanic lodge in America, located on Franklin Street in Richmond, date from the 1780s. I take the Masons as an example of organizations already in Richmond, but organizations which became part of the Confederate cause, which made available their space, made available their hierarchy, their membership to help in any way possible. But part of society. Of course, the New Richmond Theater, a very important part. What was going on in the social scene, cultural scene. The amazing thing to me that regardless of what's happening at the front, regardless of the bad news that many Richmonders uh, receive, the theater prospered. Uh, maybe people needed a diversion. Maybe they needed an escape. But there was a full house virtually every night of the war. The they had a lot of traditional fare. You can see Shakespeare there, for example, and so forth. There's something called Confederate drama comes into being. And these were plays written under the inspiration of the war to serve the cause in some way or another. Some of these are pretty serious. One was called the Guerrillas, about partisan warfare. But it started and had a central role in it, out of Abraham Lincoln, as a gorilla, kind of a monster man. Got great expectations. Another very popular play written during the war. Think of Charles Dickens, think of something serious, but actors rather like. Full title, great expectations. Or getting promoted in the Confederate Army by a private. The theater was very active, and yet there were those like uh, Mrs. Chestnut's uh, husband, for example, who said it's too frivolous. What we need is kind of Spartan lifestyle in this crisis. People with that attitude seem to center around this particular building, which is still standing. The Sons of Temperance Hall. They were outraged at the notion that John Barleycorn had taken over Richmond. They were appalled at the thought that uh, so much whiskey flowed in such a time of uh, sorrow, in such a time of need. So they organized a campaign and, and literally flooded Richmond with temperance tracts, little pamphlets. And my favorite which predates the Civil War, but was very popular in this period, uh, is the following. It's called a moral and physical thermometer. Or the scale of the progress of temperance and intemperance. Liquors and their effects in their usual order. You've got your thermometer on the left, and you can choose your temperature. It's got 70 plus, that means you're only drinking water, but you're entitled, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to health, wealth, serenity of mind, reputation, long life, and happiness. You drop on down, punch, that's the dividing line. You've got weak punch, that's one foot over here in the temperate land. Strong punch, got a multiple choice test. All options are bad. Like a little toddy, 
Well, we're going to know you're going to be idle, you're going to be peevish, you're going to be quarreling. You're going to have a little sickness, might have a red nose, punishment. Well, black eyes, you're wearing rags. The ultimate was pepper and rum, 70 below. We're going to know you because you hate just government. You're going to be criticizing the government all the time. A lot of folks drinking pepper and rum. We're going to know you because uh, you've got apoplexy. A lot of people drink pepper and rum. And your punishment, eventually, well, the gallows. So you take your choice. As far as I can tell, the only real effect that this temperance campaign had was to live in the streets of Britain. They have a theory as to why it did not have a greater impact. The theory had to do with the fact that there were so many people in the population who had gone to the University of Virginia. I don't know if you know about my alma mater and some of its uh, reputation. A few years ago, Playboy magazine ran a poll in the great breaking universities of this land. Had a top 20. The University of Virginia was not included. The alumni were irate, embarrassed, and humiliated. <laughs> Let them pour in if you have to uh, play fight here in Chicago. A few issues later, very prominent box came to reply. Yes, we're aware. And in the recent poll, the University of Virginia was not included. There was a good reason for it. We did not wish to mix professionals with amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> well, the partying continued. But the social life went on unabated. And this is a spectacular thing. Well, the women were at times criticized. They did make some adjustments. They had starvation parties. They served water instead of punch. Instead of hiring a band, uh, they would organize their own entertainment a lot. But they might even wear the same dress twice and so forth. And some even went to General Lee. This is correct. I'm sure some of you read this. They went to General Lee and said, are we doing the wrong thing? He said, no, continue having these parties. Continue the social life. It's very important. When the men come home, they'd be able to relax and have a diversion in the heart of the war. Originally, with that question, is the social, cultural, intellectual first city of the South. And it's certainly true that label of the military city, the first city. Tens of thousands of soldiers marched through Richmond during the war years. Tens of thousands were trained in the Richmond vicinity. Uh, you just can't read a diary of a soldier in the Eastern Theater with some reference of without some reference being made to Richmond in this regard. It's, a, it's an armed camp. At the beginning of the war, it's very exciting. Gala days, and the women come out, out, come out and they throw roses and they throw handkerchiefs and so forth and so on to the men marching. Then it becomes the most mundane, pedestrian type activity imaginable. The tramp, tramp, tramp of the soldiers always marching through Richmond. The military center. Military center, because the wherewithal of the war in large part comes from Richmond. We talked about the Frederick Ironwork. This is the Virginia State Armory, which becomes the Confederate Armory, the major arsenal in the South. Out of that complex, comes about 5,000 small arms per month. Very close to it was the Richmond Laboratory. Manufactured 72 million cartridges during the war. 72 million, the wherewithal of the war. This is the Confederate Naval Works located in Richmond. The Confederate Naval Academy was in Richmond. There were midshipmen in that academy in Richmond. Military Center. Because thousands of military officers suddenly found in their home the capital city. 
The best example of that is kind of a prototype again, 707 East Franklin Street, the Lee House. Uh, some of the Lee's sons were there and had a kind of bachelor mess. Mrs. Lee came there uh, about midpoint of the war. Uh, Robert E. Lee made it to his home when he was in Richmond. When he returned to the city after Appomattox, he came to 707 East Franklin Street. Uh, one of the great pictures by the Brady team, perhaps the most famous of Lee, was taken at the back steps of that house. And it's for me, I'm sure, to all of you. The military center because the military leaders, by and large, have an association with the city of Richmond. Of course, it's a recruitment center in the military sense because of the population density. Time and time again, campaigns to get people to join. And by and large, they were successful. And of course, in the South, the percentage of people who were eligible to serve or did serve would have been very high. But not all did. The Richmond papers are filled with these advertisements. Plus, substitute. Of course, it was lawful. Wanted immediately a substitute a man over 35 and under 18, or somebody who's not eligible for the draft himself. Papers are filled with these. And then occasionally you get this kind of uh, sardonic cartoon. Having to do with a gentleman from a fine family in town who simply didn't serve at all. And the caption read, this is not a mystery to anyone, <coughs> among society in Richmond, the caption read, Mr. Charles Augustus Slop is unable to join a regiment in the field due to the press of urgent business. A recruitment center. Of course, a medical center. The majority of all Confederates who received any kind of formal hospital treatment would have been treated in Richmond. There were 28 general hospitals and innumerable private hospitals in Richmond. But the most famous, the great Chimborazo. I know a number of you have been out there where the National Park headquarters is today. But nothing remains of the original hospital complex. Occupied 40 acres. There were 150 buildings. There were 100 additional tents. It had a bakery with a capacity of 10,000 loads a day. It had a brewery with a capacity of 400 kegs. A Chimborazo owned its own canal boat. Chimborazo loaned money to the Confederate government. Chimborazo turned the profit. Chimborazo treated 76,000 patients with a mortality rate of about 10%. That's spectacular. What's the explanation? Well, there's several. For one, the location was a happy one. The drainage is ideal. Sanitation problems that plagued uh, other hospital areas were simply not part of the scene at Chimborazo. Another part of the explanation, Chimborazo was organized in a general sense into five major divisions and then interned in the ward, but basically interned by state. In other words, all the boys of a particular wing would be from Alabama or Georgia or South Carolina or one particular state. The psychological effect of this is enormous. It also expedited assistance to those boys. In other words, a, a raffle could be held, for example, in Atlanta to raise money or send supplies for the Georgia boys at Chimborazo in one particular wing. Chimborazo, the master of which was Dr. James B. McCall. Dr. Farr ahead of his time. Apparently didn't have a sense of uh, bacteria and germs and so forth, uh, and, and that would have been true of other doctors that day and age, but, but was kind of fanatic about cleanliness. And he lined down the walls over and over again at Chimborazo. By some measurement, Chimborazo was the largest hospital in the world at that time. Now, it's not the only one in Richmond. There are many others. My favorite of the private 
I filled my friend around the particular house, the Robinson house, on a third main. The person in charge there was a woman. Her name was Sally Tompkins. <coughs> Sally Tompkins, from a prominent family, had been written at the start of the war. President Davis asked women to come forward and do their bit for the Confederacy. She arranged to take over the Robinson house, turn it into a hospital. He had no medical training whatsoever himself. Most of the staff would have been black. She did her job so well that in time she received only the most desperate patients. She treated 1,333, and only 73 died. Her services to the cause were invaluable. In time, the Confederate government decided to have to bring these private hospitals into the general hospital system. The question was what to do about this woman? The decision was made to give her a commission in the Confederate Army. She became Captain Sally Thomas. She died a year later in 1916. She was married with full military honors. Captain Sally Thomas, the hospital. What another side of the military scene in Richmond? A very brutal one would have been the prisons. Now, Richmond is the prison center of the Confederacy. It's true because of the number of different prisons and the total number of individuals who were incarcerated in them during the war. The most infamous without question is Libby, the hellhole of Dixie. I know part of Libby's been liberated right here in Chicago. The outset of the war is an all-purpose prison. I spoke last night in Milwaukee, and two individuals came up afterwards and said that uh, in one case a father, and another case uh, a grandfather, had been captured that person after had been incarcerated in Libby prison. Well, as time passes, it's a uh, detestable place for federal officers, Libby prison. We've also got in Richmond, though, Bell Island. The 10th colony in the middle of the James River, capacity of about 10,000 enlisted personnel. You've got Castle Thunder. At one point, the word on Castle Thunder was standing room only. You've got Castle Lightning. Richmond is the prison center of the Confederacy. And as regards all these other categories, the military center. Finally, Richmond certainly is the psychological, is the morale first city of the Confederacy. This is the Ordinance of Secession, which took Virginia out of the Union. Now, most Richmonders have been uh, very much against that. But when it became a reality, they rallied around the cause. They're very patriotic. I say most, but not all. An exception was a Unionist in Confederate Richmond was Elizabeth Van Loo. But I mentioned Elizabeth Van Loo because there were many Southerners uh, throughout the Confederacy who were descendants in Richmond, and even in this way, it was different. Elizabeth Van Loo. Had been taught as a child that slavery was wrong, that the Union was right, she didn't change her opinion after April 1861. The Jefferson Davis called for days of fasting and prayer. She went to the best restaurant in town and ordered the largest meal. But Jefferson Davis asked the women of Richmond to make socks for the boys. Little family made socks for the boys in Libby Prison. More significantly, perhaps, she organized a spy race. She was able to place someone, in fact, in the White House of Confederacy and elsewhere. U.S. Grant after the war said the best military intelligence he received from Richmond at any time came from Elizabeth Van Luke. When he became president, he made her postmistress of the city. That was a very high-ranking civil service position for a woman in the 1800s. After the war, as you might guess, she was ostracized. Walking on the streets, and little kids would say, witch, 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 and so forth. Had no friends, lived alone, hard times. Died in 1900, too poor even for a tombstone. People who remembered her in the North, though, took up a collection and sent down a uh, large boulder 
with inscriptions, the gist of which, in essence, was uh, Elizabeth Van Roos, who for the love of the union, hatred of slavery, gave up all the things that are dear to man, friends, family, standing, money, Elizabeth Van Roos. Well, she's in a minority. Most rich windows became very patriotic, supported the cause. And a good example of that is the reaction to the first one after. The Richmond paper said it was the greatest battle since Waterloo. The good citizens gathered there on Capitol Square. They fired off and wasted a lot of gunpowder. Thought it might all be over. At that point, that July 1861, a lot was done to keep morale up. The great patriotic songs, highly spirited. Bonnie Blue Flag, Harry McCarthy, the Richmond actor. Now, he later defected during the course of the war. They kept the song, the great one. Keep morale up. Got a whole series of Confederate textbooks. The importance of this is that not only teach content areas, but they teach patriotism, or at least the Confederate view of it. This is a geography book. Uh, there was Johnson's Elementary Arithmetic. The problems in Johnson's Elementary Arithmetic would go as follows. If one Confederate can whip 10 Yankees, then how many Confederates would be required to whip 100 Yankees? You'll know the dividing, and so forth and so on. There's a Confederate history book. Talked about government. Use some esoteric terms like despotism, so they define it on the spot. A despotism is a tyrannical government. The United States of America and Abraham Lincoln is an example of a despotism. Textbooks that inculcated not only content to a degree, but the Confederate view of things that day and age, to keep morale up. Well, they made a grand effort, but it seems to be in the spring of 1862, morale begins to ebb for the first time. There's going to be a series of blows against morale and the Confederacy, as reflected in what happened in Richmond. Because at that time, after seven pines and Pharaoh stations, some 5,000 horribly mangled bodies were brought back into the city. No longer gale days, but the heart of the war. The women were going up and down the street, screaming, yelling, looking for husbands, looking for sons. Some men were brought in dead, stacked like cordwood. Women who would have fainted at the sight of a nosebleed were participating in operations that led to the amputation of limbs. Uh, every available space was converted to a hospital. The reality of the war comes home in spring of 1862. Now, there will be other realities, of course. This is the way Hollywood Cemetery looked during the war. So beautiful now. Nothing but pencil slabs of wood in most cases. And of course, many people weren't that lucky. Written papers were filled with these little pathetic advertisements. Anybody seen my son? Anybody seen my father? The name of so-and-so and so-and-so, last seen on the battlefield at. There were tens of thousands of men who were simply never heard from again. Not long ago, just outside Richmond, a relic hunter discovered the body of a Confederate soldier. Never been buried, apparently badly wounded, wandered off into a wooded area, collapsed, died, the leaves fell, so he came and went, and so forth and so on. Identified the buttons, North Carolina Regiment, in the seven days, in the spring of 1862. Terrible blow to morale. Thousands of homes, geared after the war, would keep an empty chair at the table. So they knew that father would be home someday, but he never came. Of course, some losses were greater than others. Some all jacked. People couldn't believe this. 
In many ways, Jackson Mateen to me was a greater hero than Lee. For the Southern people, if you're in the war itself. In part because they knew he was a man of God and he was devout. In part because they thought he was invincible. In part because Stonewall itself seemed to signify a kind of bulldog determination. In part because on a number of battlefields he seemed to turn the tide by his sheer presence, by his will. And yet he was dead. He brought his body by rail from Fredericksburg, getting stationed into the city, placed him in state in the rotunda of the capital. 20,000 Richmonders paid their respects to Stonewall Jackson in disbelief. And then about a year later, almost to the date, another stunning loss, Jeb Stewart, the eyes of the lead army, whose spirit and verb symbolized a certain dash about the Confederate hopes. Never been touched by shot nor shell. More than wounded yellow tavern, though many of you have seen that shrine out there. Brought back into the city to his brother-in-law's house. I lingered for another day and died. Terrible blows, Confederate morale. Silent killer, inflation. Little piece of paper, pathetic caption on the left, that six months after the war, in essence it says, six months after the war, we'll make good this 50 cents. How bad was inflation? Well, take your choice. Need some candles? $50. Need some matches? $25. And so forth and so on. What did the Confederate private get paid? Well, it depended on whether he was in the infantry or the cavalry, and depending on the time in the war, but roughly between $11 and $13 a month. So you can't live on it. That's true. In the midst of this, there were days of fasting and prayer, and people wanted to know, and they asked Jeff Davis, well, what do you think we've been doing? It's not fasting and praying. J.B. Jones, famous Confederate war clerk, entered in his diary in April of 1863 in response to one of these proclamations. Imagine it, fasting amid famine. And of course, on occasion, more than words. Famous Red Rock, spring of 1863. The women marched. They were armed with knives and other weapons. And they demanded, give us bread or give us blood. And the Home Guard was called out to stop the women without success. And old Mayor Joe Mayo came to the scene and read the riot act without success. Governor Lester came. Brought with him artillery. No luck. Jefferson Davis came. Made a little speech, not very effective. Then he got out his watch and said, ladies, you have five minutes to disperse. He turned to the artillery captain and said, Captain, fire at the end of five minutes. Well, the crowd dispersed. But this is symptomatic of deep frustrations and problems with morale in the capital city. And then there are a series of alarms. There's no way we can appreciate this. Uh, we can think back a few years ago what we all watched on television about the evacuation of Saigon. There's no way we can appreciate the fact that uh, a people faced what they thought would be total destruction. The people of Richmond knew all about what happened in Meridian. They knew all about what happened in Jackson, Mississippi. They knew what happened in Columbia. They can't imagine the terror of the prospects of the Federal Army at the gates. Can't imagine the terror, the sound of the alarm bell from Capitol Square. And how many alarms were there? When did they start? For well, the people of Richmond. 
Well, the first was April 1861. It was thought to be a federal gunboat was coming up to James. April 1861, the very month of the session. And then finally, it was no alarm at all, but a reality. We have that horrible night of April 2nd, April 3rd, 1865. The capital had to be evacuated. The Confederates set fire to anything they thought might be of military value to the incoming federal army. Sky is filled with debris as a result of the explosions of munitions dumps and the like. The fire spreads rapidly, but it's a windy night. There are drunken mobs in the streets. The convicts are loose from the penitentiary. Our prisoners have escaped from Libya and elsewhere. There's absolutely no way the civilian population can be extricated. All wagons, all horses, commandeered by the military. All bridges burned. They're left alone. It's Holocaust. No way we can imagine that. How did it react? Well, it depends on the individual, of course. And my favorite story involved is Mrs. Stannard. She was high society, lived just off Capitol Square. She was a widow. She'd been winding down by the finest in Britain. She was all alone. What could she do? Well, at first she was hysterical, and then she became very calm. She went upstairs to a dressing room. She got her finest gown, got as much jewelry as she could put on herself. She got her opera glasses, put everything else in a suitcase. Took the suitcase into her front yard. She sat on the suitcase and got out her opera glasses and she watched the flames coming down the street, burning one house after another, finally across from her. Finally, because of the wind, into the trees in her yard and finally into her very house. And it was all consumed before her eyes as she sat that front watch it with a rocket back. Exactly one week later, exactly one week later, Lee surrendered to Appomattox. And this, it seems to me, is a final, a pathetic, tragic symbol of how Richmond, in fact, had been the first city of the Confederacy. Uh, last night, coming back from Milwaukee, uh, we were talking about things. Uh, I have to mention the word grant. And Merle got so excited that he missed the turn. About 11.30 last night, I got a tour of historic Waukegan. But thank you very much, Merle. Be glad to take any questions if you have any about Richmond during the war years. Yes, sir. What was the uh, first commander of the Union Army commander Richmond? The first commander. Well, Bill Mowry would be able to answer that because it came from the uh, uh, Fort Harrison area. Uh, Jeffrey Weitzel was the, the commander in an ultimate sense. I don't know if in a physical sense he actually set foot in the, in the city limits. I don't know. Weitzel became the military commander uh, of occupation immediately. <coughs> and incident, let me just add, incidentally, he'd been a friend apparently of uh, Fitzhugh Lee before the war. And, you know, Fitz Lee was very popular at West Point. And uh, when Fitz Lee came back to Richmond and put in at 707 East Franklin Street, uh, with Robbie Lee, his uncle, he received a note from Weitzel. And the note said, uh, in essence, uh, General Lee, is there anything that General Weitzel can do for you? Uh, so forth and so forth. And apparently, Fitz Lee got this and was overcome with emotion and uh, responded uh, you know, with great gratitude. Yes. I just wanted to destroy that famous uh, branch of Richmond philosophy. Oh, no. A branch, of course, was in Petersburg, and he was chasing Lee to Appomattox at this point in time. Sir. Would you care to comment on the problems of the fact that like, the Confederate national government, the Virginia state government, the county government, and the city government were all trying to operate out of the same town at the same time? Well, a given modern-day problem of that nature, 
Uh, you would think it would be insurmountable, but uh, as best I can tell, the cooperation was exceptionally good. Now, the sticking point was that Richmond was put under martial law in early 1862, and uh, there's great resentment among the civilian population about that. But cooperation in general is exceptional. And one reason for that is that Governor Letcher uh, was a remarkably diplomatic man. And uh, some measures that might have been taken elsewhere were not taken in Richmond. Uh, the second war governor was extra Billy Smith. And he's a great hero in Richmond because he went all out to try to feed the city. And he brought in food, in fact, uh, since Egypt down in the North Climbing Line, commandeered a railroad to feed the city. So some state city difficulties you might have predicted uh, simply did not materialize on any significant scale. Yes, sir. Where does the name Chimborazo? Chimborazo is the name of a mountain in the Andes, and apparently Dr. McCall, somebody had been there, and they thought the disco from this particular point was very similar. Uh, in fact, the name predates the Civil War. It's very unusual, of course. And it's still the name of that locale. It's Chimborazo Hill today. Yes, sir. Do you care to comment on modern-day Richmond's attitude towards preservation? Well, it's a mixed bag. There's some marvelous things going on. There's something called Historic Richmond, and they have now restored uh, on the equivalent of about seven or eight important uh, city blocks, and they have recently purchased outright another entire block. And I say their record is just uh, outstanding. Uh, everything that's been done has been done as a result of a fight, however. And there are always people who would prefer to see a parking lot, uh, you know, to this, that, or the other. Uh, Sally Tompkins Hospital is now uh, the site of Bill's Bar and Grill, you know, the historic Bill's Bar and Grill. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty bad. I gave a talk in Pittsburgh, and I'm very curious about the site of Braddock's uh, uh, defeat. And so I, I went to a lot of trouble to find that, and, uh, and I did. And it's the site of uh, a very historic place uh, today. It's called Vincent's Pizza Park. So there's difficulties everywhere, and this one's record, and it's mixed, but I think there's many positive aspects to it today. Seems to be a great awareness. Outside of Richmond, and I know you're very interested in battlefield tours, outside of Richmond, the record is deplorable. Talking about immediately outside of Richmond. A seven days, Savage Station, many of you have been there, I'm sure in time past, you will not be able to find it now because there's been a, uh, an interchange built that just totally destroyed that battlefield. Uh, some of you may know that uh, Dr. Freeman, Amber Johnson, and others in, in the 1920s were very concerned about the preservation of the seven days and other battle sites in the Richmond vicinity. They arranged for the purchase of a lot of that and the transfer of that land to the state. But there were apparently some uh, very peculiar restrictions on it. And as I understand, the Park Service cannot acquire itself any additional land to go with that given from the original uh, grant uh, unless an owner wants to donate it to the state. And of course, that's rare indeed. So you've got Cold Harbor, and Cold Harbor now is just being developed right and left. I'm sure some of you who were there five or six years ago would not recognize uh, that Park Service site in Cold Harbor because of all the housing developments that are up to the trenches. So the record immediately outside the city, I think, is, is deplorable. Yes, Bill? Since you, since you came out to, to beard me in my den, I have to ask you at least one question. I'm and afraid. that is, And that is, even though you pointed out that it's a military center, what was the wisdom of putting the political center of the Confederacy a hundred miles from a capital in a city, as you say, that was definitely destined to be fought for? Okay, after the fact, I believe there's a consensus that it was strategically a mistake. But at the time, nobody anticipated a long war. Nobody anticipated a real serious fight. 
You know that Lincoln called for volunteers for 90 days. Uh, you know that uh, students at the University of Mississippi, for example, uh, cried because they thought the war would be over. They wouldn't get there, they wouldn't get to Virginia. You know that a lot of people made statements like, uh, like I think, Chestnut, for example, that he would drink all the blood that would be shed. Another governor had a speech on the eve of the war that, uh, in which he concluded by saying that he would uh, wipe up all the blood that would be shed with, and he'd reach in his back pocket and you know, wave a white handkerchief. So they just didn't anticipate Seriously. But even during the war, they must have seen. Well, I think once the decision was made, Richmond becomes a symbol, you see. And it's psychologically important. Uh, Any other questions? Dan, 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 I think we had one here. Oh, right here. Excuse me, Brooke. You talked very much about ancient Richmond. I'd like to pursue two questions about modern day. Fine. Now that the Reverend Swan has left yes. St. Paul, now you, what has uh, been done about the restoration of the battle Hard to know they have not been uh, returned. And number two, you mentioned that the Australian friend uh, barricaded at the uh, penitentiary round table, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Well, the lecture was yesterday, and of course, I was here. No, but I mean the round table. Oh, the round table. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to comment on that. Uh, I guess one of the most unique of all the round tables in the world is the one that's in Richmond in the maximum security division of the Virginia State Penitentiary. It's something that J.A. Amler Johnson helped to originate, I believe, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, has been very active ever since. Uh, they meet weekly. Now, of course, uh, I know there's a captive audience and so forth and so on. But, uh, uh, we have programs, uh, virtually all the speakers who come to the Richmond Roundtable do double duty and also go to the prison roundtable. Uh, we have an annual quiz with them. Uh, the prison roundtable competes against the Richmond Roundtable. And uh, we break even uh, uh, as a rule. Uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic thing because uh, these people are in there for very serious crimes. Uh, some of them, without question, uh, are socially maladjusted in the, in the worst sense of, uh, of the word. And yet, uh, they've gotten wrapped up in this subject of the Civil War. And uh, they write all over the place for literature and information. And uh, they, they have these speakers on an ongoing basis. And I've spoken to them myself. Uh, it's a dynamite audience. I mean, they, they, are, they appreciate you coming in there. They're excited about what you're talking about. They have a lot of questions. Uh, so uh, I think it's, it's the most unusual uh, part of the round table movement. And it's likely to be there for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Did you have a question here? Uh, did, Richmond, uh, did Richmonders follow the lead of the people of Vicksburg and refuse to celebrate the 4th of July after the war for some time? sure about that. I don't know that, that particular custom. It's, it's roundly celebrated in modern times, but uh, I'm not sure. Uh, don't know one way to mark it. I don't know much about her after the war, but uh, Phoebe Pember was a widow, and she was not from Virginia, but uh, she apparently felt uh, she was not doing her bit, and uh, she wanted to make a contribution of, of some sort. I don't think she had any medical training whatsoever, but she volunteered for a service, as did many. She ended up at Chimborazo. In time, she became a, a division matron. In other words, she was the, the head administrator of one of the five basic divisions of Chimborazo. And of course, uh, she kept records and wrote a lot of letters, and uh, there is a, a book out uh, of her experiences. Uh, which is exceptionally good for insight into hospital life. 
Uh, and a lot of stories that are often cited about Kimberado come from uh, Phoebe Kimber's uh, recollections. Uh, and, and I think she's sort of typical of a lot of people who just sort of rose larger than themselves and did something they didn't think they could do, uh, you know, for the cause. Yes, sir. I'm surprised. I really didn't know about the importance of Richmond, the size of the city, or its contribution to the country. In all my history books, I never heard of it. It was discussed as the capital of the South, but they didn't go into the details that you've got. Maybe there's another set of these textbooks that are used in the North. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's striking to me that most people have a stereotype of Richmond as a political capital. That's it. That's it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Did it take a long time uh, after Appomattox before the population uh, really started building again? I imagine it was, it was quite a period there where nothing was happening. Well, of course, it's very traumatic, and I'm sure you've all uh, seen the Curry and I's uh, picture that I showed in the slide of the burning, and it suggests total destruction, but that's not correct. Uh, the fire was along the waterfront in some warehouses and uh, at the Virginia Armory and what have you, but most of the city was not burned. And the people came back, and Richmond got it on its feet uh, rather quickly. And some people believe, in fact, the fire may have been a good thing because a lot of those buildings were pretty, pretty obsolete and in pretty sad shape. And uh, they came in with kind of an urban renewal program and uh, the really exciting architecture that dates from immediately after the Civil War. Uh, there's one section uh, directly in front of the Capitol called the Iron Front Building. And they came up with the idea of something like jello mode, but using iron and a, and a, and a, and a construct facades for buildings. And this is just spectacular. I mean, it's well worth preservation. So uh, the recovery was much uh, more quick than you might have thought, and, and it was a constructive kind of recovery. Virginia was very lucky in having a, a very mild form of reconstruction. Uh, Schofield comes in in March of 1867 as the military uh, governor of District Number no. 1, which was Virginia. And he had a lot of friends in Virginia, apparently from before the war. Uh, he chose as his friends at the time a lot of the old line Richmond social leaders, and you don't have the experience that you have in Texas on the charity. You know, like the charity would say if he uh, owned both Texas and hell, uh, he would uh, live in hell and rent out Texas and so forth. <laughs> Not that sort of thing. You don't have Pope who's trying to, he's got tired of fighting Indians and so forth, so he's down in Florida, you know, whatever. Uh, had a very mild reconstruction period. And Richmond is still important for a lot of reasons that made it the first city in time of war. I mean, there's still the canal, there's still the railroad, they, they have to be repaired. There's still a, a deep water terminal. Tradiga, and you might be interested in this, was not destroyed in the fire. It, it was supposed to have been, the orders were given, but Jody Reed Anderson had the Tradiga Battalion, which had been organized during the war, kind of a home guard, uh, essentially stopped the Confederates from destroying it. Anderson had, had concluded it was hopeless and that it would serve no purpose to destroy Tradiga. And Kirk is back on its feet immediately. And it uh, operates on that site until the 1950s. Anderson is just one of the great men of the time, in, in my opinion. Dan, uh, I'm glad that when you were talking about the uh, round table in the state penitentiary down there that you didn't mention that when uh, one of those members there writes a letter, he does it with penmanship. <laughs> yeah, you didn't write that uh, pun on McClellan, did you? Oh, but, uh, 
we want to uh, make this uh, occasion very memorable to you, and we're very grateful, and I'm sure that uh, our members that are here this evening uh, will agree with me that yours is not a breakfast speech. It's definitely an after-dinner speech, and to help you remember this occasion, we have a plaque here for you. Uh, do you recognize the gentleman? Yes, this is Mayor Mayo, who was uh, the chief civil official in Richmond during the war years, and uh, thank you very much. I'll treasure this, and I'll uh, put it prominently in my office. So, okay. thank you very much. Meetings adjourned. We'll see you next month with Henry Pomerantz.